Welcome to this podcast featuring well-known Bible teacher, Kevin Connor. For more information, visit kevinconnor.org. Tonight we're going to take a few thoughts from uh, Genesis chapter 3. Bible college students, you'll just uh, remember I'm not totally catering for you because you get some of this in class, uh, but you'll always pick up. I hope some crumbs from the rich man's table here. <laughs> Through it all. Let's turn as we start tonight uh, by way of introduction to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians 11. that we're going to talk about tonight particularly is the, the fall, the temptation and the fall of man, and particularly how sin entered through the woman, through the first bride. And the picture that we have there that the Apostle Paul takes up, and uh, we're going to read sort of two scriptures, two passages from 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, and then go back to Genesis chapter 3. All right, verse 1 of chapter 11, 1 Corinthians 11. Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I deliver them to you. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head. But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered, dishonoreth her head, for that is even all one as if she were shaven. For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, for as much as he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. Now, last week we particularly looked at the man and the woman, the creation of the man and the woman, and we have some very heavy statements that Paul is dealing with here. Man is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. My wife is my glory. How many husbands think that of their wife? Tragedy is today, a lot of people, their glory is departing. It's called Ichabod, it's called divorce. So if the woman is, you see, if, if, if man is the image and the glory of God and my wife is my glory... I don't want my glory to depart. She is my glory. So I'm going to look after my glory. How many husbands are going to look after your glory? Turn to your wife and say, glory. (laughs) Come on, come on, come on. He's to say it to you. You're my glory. (laughs) Is your wife your glory? Yeah, I'd like to hear that. Well, my wife sings uh, to me, Kevin came down, glory filled my soul. (laughs) 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 And I sing to her, I am thine, O Joyce, I have heard thy voice. (coughs) (laughs) And it tells thy love to me. Um, All right, let's continue. (laughs) Getting digressed here. Uh, all right, so for the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Now you'll notice all through this, Paul is going back to chapter 2 of Genesis. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. A most peculiar verse here, verse 10, which we'll sort of give a good side swipe on tonight. For this cause, for what cause? All that he said before ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels? I want to throw out the questions to you that we ask in class and just sort of torment you a little bit. That's perfectly all right, I guess. What have women got to do with angels? What have angels got to do with women? Have you ever read that verse and asked those funny questions? For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. 
Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. For as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman, but all things are of God. Judge in yourselves, is it comely that a woman pray unto God uncovered? Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him? I wonder where we got all these funny pictures about Jesus having long hair. But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hat is given her for a covering. Does it say that? What does it say? Her hair is given her for a covering. Now I'm always tempted to get onto the hair situation, but it might be too much of a hair raid around here, so I keep off it. Doesn't talk anything about hats. I'd just like to encourage women to keep your hair on. Funny how women are becoming more mannish in their hairstyles and men are becoming more womanish in their hairstyles. Uh, it wouldn't hurt to have a good lecture to the church, I think, on these first 11 verses. Here it's quiet tonight. <laughs> her hair is given her for a veil. You'd be surprised how much the Bible talks about hair. You'd be surprised if I preached on it one day. Might shock you, but I better not. I better keep my friends. <laughs> Otherwise, you'll throw verse 16 at me. For if any, but if any man seemed to be contentious, <laughs> we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. All right, let me just throw a few little words at you here. Oh God, help us and help the people. Um, the key word in this uh, section, we've read verses 1 through to 11, what would you key the, uh, say the key word is? Covered. How many times is it used roughly? Uncovered or covered. All right, so uh, first, the first word I want you to note is in verse 3, and uh, you're going to see the significance of this, I hope. Anyway, we have this thought of headship. That's uh, put right in verse 3. There's an order of headship here. I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ. Christ is my headship. We talk a lot about headship. What do we mean by headship? And the head of the woman is the man. And the head of Christ is God. So even in the Godhead, there's an order of headship. That's why we speak of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Christ, uh, God is the head of Christ. In other words, what, what we're going to be dealing with tonight in the fall, uh, let's, let's go back a little bit here. Uh, I have a little saying here that God uh, always demonstrates in his own being any principle that he wants to see demonstrated in the, in the family, in the husband and wife and the children relationship, or in, in the church and the order, the government there. Uh, God has demonstrated in his own nature and being every principle that he lays down for us to demonstrate. Never ask us to do uh, what he himself doesn't do or doesn't demonstrate in his own being. As I said last week, God never lays down laws for man to do what he himself as the lawgiver doesn't keep and, 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 and can't fulfill. So right in the very revelation of the Godhead, we have uh, God is the head of Christ. So when we speak of God, we're speaking of the Father. So the Father is head. And then uh, Christ the Son. Well, let's put over here. The Father, the Son. Uh, Christ is the head. He's the head of the church. There's an order of headship. The Father is the first person. Son, the second person. And this headship of the Son is exercised through the Holy Spirit. So we might say that the headship of Christ is manifest in the church through the Holy Spirit. See, so we speak of the Godhead, headship. Now, though there's headship, yet in this headship there's order here, and uh, this order, we, we have equality of persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are equal as persons, and there's plurality of persons, spoken of as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's equality, there's plurality, and yet there's order. Now, I'm sort of laying this as a foundation because of what we're going to see happens in the, in the fall in Genesis 3. So, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are equal as persons. There's no, no arguing in the Godhead. The Son doesn't say, well, listen, I don't like being second. 
And the Holy Spirit doesn't say, well, I don't like being third. There's no fighting in the Godhead. You know, when the Father said to the Son, I want you to go down to earth and uh, save man and be crucified, and then when the Son's raised from the dead, he goes back to heaven and says to the Holy Spirit, right, oh, you go down, your turn now. And the Holy Ghost says, I'm not going down after what they did to you. You know, uh, there's, there's, no, there's no argument in the God. There's an order of submission in the Godhead. The Holy Spirit is the servant person of the Godhead, yet the Son submitted. And so we have this equality, plurality, and order, and submission. My wife and I are equal as persons. There's plurality of leadership in our home. There's order in our home, I, I think. Uh, there's submission in our home. One word for me, my wife does what she likes. It's just... <laughs> And you see, today when there's so much teaching on headship, to many husbands they think that submission is suppression. Wives submit, submit or split. Generally they split or split. Uh, but submission is not suppression. Submission is coming under the protection of another. And it's easy for a wife to submit when there's love. All right, the next word I want to pick out here, so we're looking at verse 3. I've sort of got off a little bit here. The head of every man is Christ. The head of the woman is the man. The head of Christ is God. So God, the Godhead has demonstrated this order of headship. Now, this is to be demonstrated not only in the Godhead family, we might say. This order is to be demonstrated in any family. So we have the man, the husband, and in the case we looked at last week, we looked at Mr. Adam, and then we have the wife, or the, yes, uh, let's put this proper way, the woman, the man and the woman, who is the wife. And then we have the offspring, the family. So there's an order there, but not inferiority. Plurality, equality, order, submission. Now, the challenge to me, to every husband, is the head of every man is Christ, how can a husband truly exercise headship if he himself is not under headship? That's the point. And many men are out from headship today. You see, the head of every man is Christ. Christ is my head. And I am a head. I exercise headship over my wife. She's happy to submit to my headship. But how can she happily submit to my headship unless I am under headship? And because she knows that I am submitted to headship, she's happy to su submit to my headship. And I believe that's one of the keys to a happy home, a happy married life. All the husbands said amen. All the wives said oh me. All the wives said amen. Yeah. All right, so the next word we pick up then, so the order of headship I want to pick up here, head of every man is Christ. So as the husband is under Christ's headship, he can exercise headship. Then the next key word we have is covering. Now I want you to go back to uh, the book of Genesis just for a moment here where the husband is referred to as a covering. I better just hold uh, 11 there. Um, Genesis chapter 20. Genesis 20. I've read the Bible through a few times, but I've never seen this before. Revelation chapter 20, we have the case, uh, I mean, not Revelation 20, Genesis 20. Okay. Genesis 20, we have the case of Abimelech, Abraham, and situation ethics, uh, telling half a truth and half a lie about his wife. Law of self preservation is very strong in him. Anyway, God uh, plagues the whole household and uh, Sarah has to be restored to Abraham. But notice what Abimelech said to, Abra uh, said to Sarah about Abraham, her husband. Verse, uh, verse 15, And Abimelech said, Genesis 20, verse 15, And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before thee, dwell where it pleaseth thee. And unto Sarah he said, Behold, I have given thy brother, and her brother was her husband because they had the same father but different mothers if I remember correct uh, I have given thy brother which was Abraham her husband a thousand pieces of silver and then notice what he said 
Behold, he is to thee a covering. And the Hebrew is a veil, a raiment. He is to thee a covering of the eyes and unto all that are with thee and with all other. So Abraham as the husband is represented as a covering. Okay, now I want you to go back to 1 Corinthians 11. Let's sort of get this together in a moment here. Now going down to this peculiar verse in verse 10. So after going through about the necessity of covering and the man being uncovered because he is the covering, the woman being covered um, and, the, and the woman being the glory of the man, the man being the image and glory of God and so forth. So in verse 10 he says, For this cause, everything that he said before, ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. Now those of you who have a marginal reference and maybe another translation, uh, how many have some other translations here? Anybody got NAS? What's your say? Uh, read, read it out loud, uh, Steve. Yes, uh, verse 10, I'm sorry. Sign of authority on her head. Very good. Anyone else? Got any other translation? Tim? Good, good. I want that. Yes, sister. What have you got? Good. Uh, what translation is that? Living Bible. Very good. Okay, so they're all saying the same thing. I'm going to read it from uh, what Tim's just read out from the King Jimmy's translation, uh, and the others are, are saying the same thing virtually. For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head, a covering, in sign that she is under the power of her husband in sign that she is under authority. Okay, so this thought of covering, sign that she is under authority, and why the reason is because of the angels. Now, as I said, what have the angels got to do with women? What have women got to do with angels? What's this whole deal about? Now, let's go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, one more passage, and then we'll go back to Genesis 3. I wanted you to see how the New Testament takes this up because uh, we're dealing with some pretty heavy principles tonight. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 11. Second Corinthians chapter 11. And uh, we'll just read verses 1 to 3. Second Corinthians chapter 11, 1 to 3. Would to God ye could bear with me a little in my folly and indeed bear with me. For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Now you see what Paul is doing? So in verse 2, we looked at this last week on the marriage of Christ and the church, or Christ and his bride. Here in verse 2 he says, I have espoused you to one husband, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the husband. And I want to present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Eve was the first chaste virgin presented to one husband, not a dozen. No polygamy back there. A chaste virgin presented to one husband. And he says, this is a picture of the church. For this cause ought the woman, and you can take it as the wife and as the church, the woman, the wife, the bride-to-be of Christ should be under covering, under headship of Christ because of the angels. So after saying that in verse 2 about the church, that uh, I want to present you the Corinthian church, I've espoused you, you espouse, you engage to be, you be betrothed to the one husband, Jesus Christ, and a dozen husbands, and I want to present you as a pure, chaste virgin of Christ, but my fear is, and now he goes way back to Genesis 3. I fear that, lest by any means, that what happened in Genesis 3, which we're going to be looking at, as the serpent beguiled Eve, this first woman, this first chaste virgin, 
and messed up that marriage and brought a division until the husband sinned, I fear that just as that happened back there, that this will happen to the church. And the tragedy is that this is what has happened to the church because Adam is a type of Christ, Eve is a type of the church, right? Okay, now in the light of that foundation of 1 Corinthians 11, 2 Corinthians 11, let's go back to Genesis 3. Everybody clear on what I'm saying so far? Amen? All right, Genesis chapter 3. Now, if you can sort of keep all, all these uh, words in mind, I'll have to sort of erase them here. And Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through to 6, we have the account of the fall. Uh, as we saw last week, God has made this beautiful man and this, or this handsome man and this beautiful woman. I guess men are beautiful, women are beautiful, but women aren't handsome. Men are handsome and women are beautiful. I think they're the proper words. <laughs> mirror, mirror on the wall, who is fairest of us all? And the mirror smashed. <laughs> so here we have a perfect man and a perfect bridegroom made in the image of God and the glory of God and the glory of each other. And so verses 1 through to 6, we see how the enemy comes into the garden. And uh, this is what we want to look at here. Now, you'll notice that God has placed the man and the woman in the garden in a period of probation. And the thing that's going to be tested is free will, faith, obedience, and dependence. I'd like to give you those four words. Man is on a period of probation and the things that are going to be tested are free will, faith, obedience, and dependence upon the Lord. That, that's the fourfold test. The test of free will, the test of faith, test of obedience, and the test of dependence. Those four things are going to be tested. So I'll use a little diagram on this. Here we have two, uh, it's a garden full of trees, but there's two major trees in the garden, and this one we speak of as the tree, I'll just abbreviate this, the tree of eternal life. Now, I know we've touched on this before, but because of what we've looked at in Corinthians, I want to weave some of those things together. Let's go to chapter 3 uh, to verse 22 a moment to show that this tree, I believe, was the tree of eternal life. Genesis 3, verse 22. This is after man has sinned and after the woman has sinned. The Lord God said... Behold, the man is become as one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. So man had partaken of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. If he had partaken of this and God says so, lest man put forth his hand and take also of this, the tree of life, and eat and live forever in a fallen, unredeemable state, God drove him out the garden and... Uh, and took this tree away from him. So here we have the tree of eternal life. Then on the other hand, we have the uh, tree of uh, the knowledge of good and evil. I'll just abbreviate this a little bit too. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It wasn't just the tree of evil. There's mixture here. Like most uh, stuff on the television and newspapers, it's a mixture. Well, I just speed upon that tree to kick, uh, pick up the good. I won't touch the evil. I go to the trash can and I, I just eat the good that's in the trash can. I don't eat the evil. And uh, I'd like to spend the whole night on this. We're not going to be able to, to challenge us. Which tree are we feeding on? And if you saw the fruit of this tree that we see in the philosophies today, particularly humanism, and how many churches are starting to imbibe that stuff. And our educational institutions. That's why I'm so happy about so many Christian schools being raised up. What are we feeding our kids on? People don't uh, care about Christian schools. They'd rather send them to secular and feed upon a lot of that stuff. And the end result is going to be tragic. All right, well... Here we have over here, God has said you can eat of every tree of the, uh, of the garden. The only forbidden tree is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
Now, down here, I'd like to put two areas of ground, and this area of ground I call the ground of faith. The ground of faith and the ground of obedience. Now, I said man is put on a period of probation, the man and the woman put on a period of probation, and they're going to be tested in their free will, they're going to be tested in faith, they're going to be tested in obedience, Let's put the other one. They're going to be tested in dependence. How do you spell, in, how do you spell dependence? Eh? This chalk can never spell. It really can't. Um, dependence. They're going to be tested. Then on the other hand, we have some ground over here, which I refer to as the ground of unbelief. ground of unbelief and the ground of disobedience because uh, unbelief and disobedience are two sides of the same coin and independence in negates dependence I am independent are you that's the original sin I will be like God I will be independent of God so now we're told in verse 1 how the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field. That's supposed to be a little snake in the grass. Let's give him a little forked tongue out here. Little eye. A little bit of a flathead. <laughs> so, <laughs> man, that looks powerful, doesn't it, eh? <laughs> you can see why they never gave me a job in the art gallery. Kind <laughs> of. So now the serpent comes into the garden and we're told that he was more subtle than any beast of the field. Now, who is the serpent? Everybody knows who the serpent is. It's the devil himself, isn't it? Now, let, let me just qualify here. I don't believe in spiritualizing away the word of God. I believe they were in a literal garden. I believe they were actual trees. I believe this was an actual snake in the grass. Uh, not spiritualizing it. But beyond the, the literal and the natural, there was the spiritual. Okay. and uh, so the devil looks on as I said last week the devil looks on this masterpiece of creation the man and the woman and he's heard God's covenant to them to be fruitful multiply as I said angels neither marry nor are given in marriage so they're created as a company of beings whether they were created individually or in mass uh, I don't know but they're created as a company of beings not as a race angels do not marry they're not given in marriage they do not reproduce after their kind so here the devil, the serpent, who is God's arch enemy, he sees this new creature, this new creation, the man and the woman, made in the image of God, spirit, soul, and body, a triune man, and he's heard the covenant of God, I want you to be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth, and have dominion over it, and make the whole earth like the Garden of Eden. This is my covenant to you. And subdue it. And that Hebrew word subdue is, there's an enemy around that has to be subdued. And so the devil thinks, marriage, what's that? Fruitfulness, what's that? A baby, what's that? Little baby angels, Cupid, doll? Never heard of such a thing. It's a new thing. And God's given this man and woman dominion over this planet Earth. Personally, I believe Satan originally had the planet Earth and his losses in heaven's has been given to the man and woman, he's going to get it back by hook or by crook. It's going to be by crook here. So he comes into the garden and there's no other human being around through which he can incarnate himself in. So he incarnates himself in a beast. The serpent was more subtle. And the word serpent, by the way, means the shining one, the enchanter. The shining one and the enchanter. Uh, that's why I don't have any time for Mrs. Jean Dixon and her little crystal ball and the serpent that comes round because it's just a little Garden of Eden experience again. And it amazes me how Christians feed their mind on that stuff. Really. So, he comes into the garden here and his whole purpose is to bring about the fall of man and bring about the fall of this woman.
Now he doesn't come up to the, the woman, you know, with ten horns and a pitchfork and say, I'm the devil, boo! <laughs> you know, <laughs> he's scared of me. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't do any of that. Comes as a subtle creature and it seems that, you know, most expositors uh, seem to think that the serpent, you know, walked upright and that's uh, quite feasible. But what he wants to do now, he is, he wants to attack the Word of God. And the Word of God is the will of God and the will of God is the Word of God. So he's going to attack the Word because he wants to get them off of the ground of faith and obedience and dependence upon God, which is the basis of covenantal blessing. He wants to get them onto the ground of unbelief and disobedience and independence. So he doesn't sort of come out, you know, just, uh, as I said, with pitchfork and red hoofs and horns and say, I'm the devil, boo. Um, he comes, first of all, to the woman. Now, let's just read a little bit here because uh, taking a little surface thing here, we can miss it. And uh, if we don't check with other scriptures, we can miss it. All right, let's uh, read verse 1. I'm going to read verse 1. Now, the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the fear which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said... He shall not eat of every tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God had said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat and the eyes of them both were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons now a surface reading of verse 6 and without a knowledge of other scriptures it just looks this way she took of the fruit thereof did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat so just a surface reading of that looks as if Mr. and Mrs. Adam are both round the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and this little snake in the grass comes up and he's talking to Mrs. Adam and having a good conversation here and Adam's just standing there listening to, to it all and then after she disobeys the word then uh, she gives to her husband and he, he did eat. I want you to go over to 1 Timothy to a very interesting scripture that sort of throws a little bit of light on this that uh, we can miss on the surface reading. Let's go to uh, Timothy. First uh, Timothy chapter two. First Timothy chapter two. Now, um, I think most of you ladies know that I'm not a, uh, I'm not against women ministries. How many know that around here? That I'm not against women and I'm not a male chauvinist, I think you all should know that. How many know that by now? Um, look at verse 11, and it's interesting how this scripture is abused, particularly by men who don't want women to do anything, don't believe in women doing anything in the church. But uh, let's read the context. It says, Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection, but I suffer not a woman to teach nor usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. And they stop there and abuse or misuse that scripture against women's ministry. But let's continue on in the context and in the light of what we're discussing tonight. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing, or more literally in the childbearing, the bearing of the, child, uh, the Christ child, as well as I believe there's a natural physical promise. And my wife and I always enjoy praying for expectant mothers and God will give them an easy delivery because I believe there's a promise here for the mother if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. Now, let, let, let's pick up here. We're talking about covering, we're talking about order. In, uh, in these verses here, and as I said, let's, uh, let's not just abuse 11 and 12. Do it in the light of 11, 12, 13, 14 and 15. Now this is what we've got. In verse 13, 
he's referring to order in creation. We're talking about divine order. And for this cause ought the woman to have power and be under authority on her head and under the power of her husband because of the angels. We're talking about order and covering. So order in creation, and the order in creation was what? Adam was fir- uh, formed first and then the woman. I'll, I'll put Eve here just for sake of simplicity. So first, the order in creation was the man and then the woman. Now, that order is not inferiority. See, it doesn't make the woman inferior. See, as I said, man and woman are equal as persons, different in function. So it doesn't make the woman inferior as a person. My wife is not an inferior person. She's equal with me as a person. I respect her and honor her. Uh, But there's an order. But then, so that's verse 13. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. Now, what happens in the fall? In verse 14, we have order in the fall. And you see, this is what we're looking at in Genesis 3. Order in the fall in the entrance of sin. Verse 14, But Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. So, in the fall, we have a reversal of divine order. So now the woman takes the lead and the man follows. There's a reversal of order. So everyone hear what I'm saying? There's a reversal of order. Now my question is, why didn't this little snake in the grass come to the man? Why didn't he come to the husband? Because it was Adam that received the word. It was the man that received the word as head of the house, as husband, as covering, as protection, as guardian for his wife. And uh, I believe that Mrs. Adam was up the wrong end of the garden snooping around here, like a curious woman. I don't believe Adam was there. That's why I'm saying, let's, let, let's imagine, let's imagine that uh, he was there. Do you think that here, here is this snake in the grass talking to Mrs. Adam and saying, hath God said, and challenging the word of God, and everything like that, and this whole little occult meeting is going on here, and Adam's just standing there? I don't believe that. I mean, if any snake in the grass came up to my wife and start plugging her with questions like went on here, I'd say, <laughs> well, what would I, you know, I'd tell him to get lost or something, say, you little snake in the grass, you won't have a leg to stand on by the time I'm through with you. <laughs> eh? I'm not going to stand there and just listen to six verses of conversation and do nothing about it while this little snake in the grass is filling my wife with doubts about the word of God. Uh Uh-uh. I believe she's up the wrong end of the garden and so the serpent comes to the woman. Now, when she's up the wrong end of the garden, what she's doing, if, if, let's let's put it this way, and uh, how many feel what I'm saying is right? Mm -hmm. Eh? Okay, so Adam, her headship, her covering, her protection. I don't know where he is. Maybe he's out sweating it. No, well, he didn't sweat. Sweat's a result of the curse. Well, it wasn't, uh, uh, you know, unholy sweat there. Maybe he's out there working in the garden. I don't know what he's doing. And here his wife is wandering around in the garden and this little snake comes up along and goes through all this thing on the word and attacking the word of God and then deceives her. See, the woman was deceived. And after deceiving her into eating of the forbidden fruit, she goes and personally, take it for what it's worth, well, you haven't got scripture for it, but I think that Adam, when he realized that the vision has come in their marriage, that he sinned because he was not deceived. He sinned out of love for his wife. At least we know that in the antitype, Jesus, the last Adam, became sin to win his wife back. Eh? So maybe out of love he sinned. Now, in the Timothy, in the, uh, in the Corinthian passage, we read that verse 10, for this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels or as a sign that she is under the power of her husband. Now here, Mrs. Adam is away from her headship 
She's away from covering. She's open to deception. And who is this serpent? Who's the serpent? Satan. And who's Satan? The devil. And who's the devil? Fallen angel. You hear what I'm saying? For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angel. And here, the woman is deceived by a fallen angel. So you say, what have women got to do with angels and angels got to do with women? Everything. Because it was an angel that brought about the fall of the woman. Now, as I've said in class, and I always say it and never go beyond it, it would be frightening if you knew what is going on with women and angels today in the occult world. And we are living in such a rebel society and this women's lib, Satan's rib, Adam's fib, that whole thing, women are opening themselves to deception. I mean, it's bad enough for men. I'm not saying that men aren't open to deception, but I'll tell you that rebel women, and I just look at this on the news, you know, the Women's League of Rights to Vote and all the business and... Uh, and, 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 and look at the, the power of women who have come under the power of fallen angels and the top humanist just in Australia when I was there this summer the top, the number one humanist in America uh, is a woman and she's, she was having teaching seminars in Australia teaching on incest and that the best sex education children can have is by incest it prepares them for marriage from America and touring Australia giving lectures on this and, t- and teaching abortion, incest, uh, homosexuality, lesbianism. This is working wonderfully in America and it will go well in Australia. <coughs> I'd like to say, where's your headship? Under whose covering are you? Huh? So that verse becomes pretty heavy. And you see, let's take it on a positive side. Who was it that came to the Virgin Mary? Because, see, next, verse, verse 15, let's, let's go on here. It's our time going. Let's go on. Um, back to Timothy here. The third thing we have now, you see, we've got order in creation, which was the man and the woman. We have order in the fall, which is a reversal. The woman takes the lead, the woman is deceived, man, uh, man comes in after that. Now, the thing that God wants to establish is order now in redemption. Everyone hear what I'm saying? Order in redemption. And the order in redemption brings us back to order in creation, which is man and the woman. And if you want to take it further, in redemption, whether it be man and the woman, the order in the home, you take the whole thing, this order is demonstrated in type, Oh, I don't even like to say type, but demonstrated in, well, let's put word fact there, in the very fact of Christ and his church, his bride. So in other words, the cross, the order in redemption is to bring us back to the order because Christ, the husband and the church, there'll always be that order. And the home, every husband and wife, every wedding that takes place is just a shadow of the marriage of Christ and the church. And you can see this is why the struggle and the battle today to get any order. Uh, I just had Brother Oxley send me, I wrote to him recently, listening to some tapes on uh, humanism, uh, and he was just reading an article and he sent me photocopies of it. It's just, it's just all, it's insanity almost that uh, what they're trying to teach in Australia, and it's, it's come from here, sorry to say, uh, that we must not use the word man or woman. And so instead of male man, you must say male person. Instead of fireman, you must say fire person. Instead of uh, um, uh, hostess and host, you must say uh, a secretary or assistant. You must not use man and woman. You must delete those words so that we have the, the equality of the sexes and no one feels inferior by saying woman. And, and, and they say in this article pages of the thing, that uh, men must be, and boys must be taught how to play with dolls and flowers and things like that so that they, and women must uh, play with bulldozers and guns and 
all this thing and get rid of all this feminine traits and masculine traits and all this. Get rid of that and equalize the sexes. We've got to do this to our kids. And so we've got to delete the words man and woman because that speaks of difference in sex and we have to destroy the difference in sexes. And this is the way we're going to do it. This is just, just insanity. Well, they can try to do what they like, but they can never alter flesh. Right? You can dress them up like boys, you can make them act like boys, you can make them act like girls, dress them up like girls, but you can't alter flesh. How many know God's going to win? <laughs> Hallelujah. So we're talking about order, and this is why I believe once we see this, you know, we're happy for order in the church. We're happy for order in the home because this is disorder. Disorder, chaos. All right, now just before we finish, we've got about 10 more minutes here. I'm not going to spend too much time on this. We dealt with this in, in college. But I want to give you what I've got here, six progressive steps where Satan undermines the word. So, as I've said here, he comes in, he doesn't come as a red horned hoof, the devil, so forth. He comes in as a subtle serpent, an enchant, a chant or a shining one, and his main point is to attack the word. So, if you're taking down notes on this famous little diagram, you can just put down one, two, three, four, five, six, and I'm going to give you six successive steps in which he undermines the word because he has to attack the word to get them off of the ground of faith, the ground of obedience, the ground of dependence, onto this, the ground of unbelief, disobedience and independence. All right, I'm just going to say them briefly without too much exposition. Uh, number one, the first thing the devil does, the serpent does, is question the word. He questions the word. Hath God said? That's the first utterance of Satan in the Bible. And the devil's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's still saying, hath God said. She should have just said, God has said, shut up, you snake in the grass. Eh? So number one, he questions the word, hath God said. It was a challenge against the authority of the word. And he's still doing it. Has God said, is this inspired of God? Is this the right translation? Shouldn't there be a comma here? How do you know the Bible's a God? Anybody could wake up the Bible. And his whole thing is to challenge the authority of the word. And what blows me out makes me very wild, or righteous indignation, maybe that sounds more respectable for a pulpit, uh, is when we get uh, serpents behind the pulpit with dog collars on that teach people that this is not the word of God. And use this word that is meant to create faith, use it to create unbelief. And so we've got churches full of unbelieving believers. How many feel getting mad about that? How many think it's right to be righteous indignant about it? In other words, get mad. Jesus, you know, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, went into the temple, got a little whip and said, now come on you little boys, get out there. Come on now, run along little puppy, you know. Oh, gentle Jesus, you know. All right, number two, I'm getting uh, off the track here. Number two, the second thing he did, uh, Mrs. Adam gets into the act now. She added to the word. She added to the word and said, God said we're not to touch it. God didn't say anything about touch that, touching, touching it. She put that in there. Number three, the third thing, woman still now, she adulterated the word. What do I mean by that? She watered the word down, taking away its full effect because she said, oh God, God said we, we can eat of all the trees of the garden, but we're not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, lest we die. Did God say lest we die? No, he said you'll surely die. So that lest you die is taking away the full effect of the word, watering it down, taking away its full meaning. Step number four. The serpent now, he lies against the word. You will not surely die. It's an outright lie against the word of God. Now, to me this is a very important point and, uh, that we need to look at here. The woman is now faced with believing the lie or the truth. She's going to believe the lie of, God, or the lie of Satan, family, or the truth of God. 
she's going to believe something. God had said, you will surely die. Satan says, you'll not surely die. And everybody's going to believe something today. They're either going to believe a lie or believe a truth. And that's why Paul says, for this cause God shall send them a strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who uh, ha did not have a love for the truth. So everybody believes something. And what a tragedy when so many people are going to wake up one day and say, I've been believing a lie. Evolution is a lie. Humanist philosophy is a lie. Communist philosophy is a lie. Believing a lie. And they believe the lie to believe the, be the truth. And where we believe the truth, they believe the truth is a lie. That's a tragedy. So she's going to believe something. And so that's the whole critical thing. Will she believe the lie of Satan or the truth of God? Number five, sec, uh, uh, fifth point here is Satan slandered the word. Slandered the word. A definition of slander which I've used many, many times by Charles Finney. And if you haven't heard it or taken it down, it's well worth taking down. Uh, let, let me just... Uh, I'll eradicate a few things here. Here we have the opposites, truth, and here we have the word lie, opposites, slander. Listen to Charles, defini uh, Charles Finney's definition of slander. Slander is to tell the truth in such a way as to give the lying impression. Now, how did he do that? He said, you will be as gods, knowing good and evil. Does, now, does God know good and evil? How many know that God knows good and evil? Yes, he know, God said that. He said, the man's become as one of us to know good and evil. God knows good and evil, but can only do and be good. The lie in it was... You will be as gods, knowing good and evil, but you'll only be evil. Yes. Uh, Finney says, slander is to tell the truth in such a way as to give the lying impression, the false impression. Like a simple illustration I use. You know, I can say to my son, okay, son, shut the door when you go out, won't you? And he can just go to mum and say, Dad just yelled at me, said, shut the door. Now, did I say shut the door? I did say shut the door. I said shut the door. But I didn't say shut the door. He told the truth in such a way as to give the false impression. And one of the cursed things in the church is slander. We can tell truth about one another, but you can tell it in such a way. And that's why you have to learn to listen to a person's spirit, not just their words. Because slander is one of the most devilish things in the church. In, in fact, it's one of the names of the devil, slanderer, devil. Okay? Number six, and then we'll have to quit our times up. So telling the truth in such a way as to give the lying impression. Number six, the end result which he headed for was the woman disobeyed the word. The woman disobeyed the word. Now, that's why I believe, you know, in the light of our lesson tonight, I don't believe that we can overemphasize the importance of the Word. And I used to wonder for years why the New Testament talks so much about faith, 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 faith. But once I saw this, I realized that through the cross, Jesus Christ wants to get us off of the ground of unbelief back to the ground of faith. He wants to get us from the ground of disobedience back to the ground of obedience and from the ground of independence. Everybody wants to be independent. I belong to an independent church. No, I don't. I'm not independent. I'm interdependent. I depend upon God. But do your own thing. Existentialism is simply do your own thing. Be independent. Be a lord of yourself and don't let anybody tell you what to do. God says, come through the cross and get back onto the ground of dependence. And this is one of the biggest battles I see in the church today because most of us have come from churches, sorry to say, where we have produced unbelieving believers. How many would say that's true? As I was taught, you know, gifts of the Spirit, not for today, that's for the Jews. Tongues, not for today. Healing, not for today, that's for the devil. 
this not for today, that's not for today. That's for the Jews, that's for the millennium. And so the very word that is meant to create faith, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God, this same word is used to create unbelief in the hearts of Christians. Right? And so we come out of our different churches and before we can get the baptism, that's why we often wonder why. Why is it the sinners can come to a meeting and they get saved and healed and filled with the Spirit and everything all in one operation? Because they haven't got the ground of unbelief and the levels and measures of unbelief that have been pumped into many of us because I was taught unbelief. I was taught water baptism is not for today, communion is not for today, tongues are not for today, healing is not for today. And when I came into a church that believed those things, it took a long time to get that unbelief out of me. That unbelief that had been created in me by the word of God. How many are glad that you're on the ground of faith tonight? Yes, we believe God's word. All right, let's stand. Hallelujah. Father, we just thank thee once again for the privilege of feeding upon thy word. And we thank thee for the cross of Calvary where you've taken us from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and you brought us back to the tree of life. Thank you, Lord, that you've taken us off of the ground of unbelief and disobedience and independence and you brought us to the ground of faith and obedience and dependence, Lord. We want to believe your word, Lord. We want to obey your word. We want to be totally dependent upon thee. We want to be under covering. We want to be under headship and under authority and not open to deception. We pray, Lord, that you restore order in our homes and in the church. We believe this is your purpose, Father. Help us to meditate upon these things and seal your word to our hearts in the blessed name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And everybody said, Amen. Shake hands with each other and God bless you real good. Be sure to visit kevinconnor.org for more information about Kevin, his books and his ministry.